So this is our second edition of a uh, extended mailbag episode where we will be answering random questions that you have submitted to us via email or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any other ways of communicating with us. My carrier pigeon. <laughs> Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 42, The Question Vault Strikes Back. This episode, I think, is focusing a little bit more on advice because we are answering questions sent in from our, uh, I'm assuming, our adoring fans and one disgruntled fan. <laughs> that disgruntled fan is me. <laughs> Just wearing it's <laughs> from David. <laughs> this first question is from David. It says, uh, I hate you. No, I'm kidding. Right. Hi. <laughs> Our first question is from Tim, who writes, Hey guys, how do I find a group to play with? I've only ever played two sessions, although I read a ton about the game when I was in high school back in the 90s. Now I'm looking for a group to play, but none of my friends play. The local game store hosts games, but they're on nights that I have to work. And I have a ton of social anxiety, so playing with a bunch of strangers is terrifying. Any suggestions on how to find other players or how to convince my friends to try playing? Thanks, Tim. This is a multi-part question, I think. Mm. Very good, because I think that Tim is not alone. Um, I think that the percentage of people who are interested in D&D and are unable to play it is probably much higher than the people who are actually playing it. Yes. So, uh, I think we talked about this last episode, and it's a good idea, but... If you have friends who have any sort of similar interests in any sort of genre that you're interested in, whether it be fantasy, sci-fi, or Western, or you know anything along those lines, you could try pitching a game to them in that genre. So let's play a superhero game. Let's play, let's play Star Wars. Let's play a zombie game. Mm. You know, there's so many different ways in which you can make it more relatable and accessible to them and that they might be interested in. So that would be probably my first strategy because I definitely want to play with people who I have chemistry with, who I like to hang out with, who I know, and who I, you know, want to be around. Uh, the next, I guess, if that, if you look at that and that just doesn't work for you, then definitely trying to make connections with other people who do play. So that's probably going to look like maybe you go to your local game store and, you know, Find people that you actually enjoy. You don't have to play with them to begin with. That's a big commitment Mm -hmm. to just, hey, I want to join your 100-session campaign. And then, you know, now you're committed and you're stuck. And maybe you don't like those people. And that's totally fine. So first you need to start out by finding people that you want to be around and hang out with and just goof around with. Because a lot of D&D is just hanging out with your friends. So if you're not friends with these people, it's going to be a lot more difficult to do so so just trying to make friends with people who have similar interests maybe you check out and see if there are any clubs nearby or game stores or anything of that sort if you're in college uh, some campuses have D clubs that you might want to check out and you know yeah i think this is a, a really important question and it's it's really hard i think i've been really lucky to have you know, kind of coming out of college and being like, okay, yeah, this is my group. And then those people moved away and then it's kind of replaced with a new group. Um, But I think, uh, like David said, finding local clubs, local groups, even if it's a local fantasy club or a local um, Warhammer group, um, stuff that are kind of vaguely connected 
to D&D um, is a good way to do it. Um, but I think in general, to start a group, it, it's much easier to do it with your friends. Um, and even if it's once a month, you, you know, um, preferably it's once a week. But even if it's once a month or every two weeks, um, with your friends being like, let's just have a board game night. Every second Tuesday, we do this. I think that is so important. I think um, that is a huge reason why I am so into Dungeons and Dragons today is because I had a group um, and we played every Thursday. We called ourselves the Thursday Nights uh, with a K in <laughs> I G H T S. And we're just like, <laughs> we had a Facebook group and it was like, and, and like, yeah, it's, it's, it's cringe. It's, it's funny, but it's like that night was sacred to us. And if someone said, Hey man, can you do something Thursday night? They go, no, sorry. I have like this. I have something planned. I have and a I crusade to take really, care of. Really important. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's really important though, because like, a lot of times you go, oh, yeah, it's game night. Like, oh, F it. Doesn't matter. It's just game night. I can cancel it, whatever. And I think a lot of times when adults get to that age and it really breaks my heart, it just becomes like this like kind of thing you toss around. Like, oh, I can play maybe five weeks from now, uh, maybe a month from now. And, oh, Gary can only play six months from now. And it's like, ah. I think it's really, really important to pick a day. Like I said, even if it's once a month, every two weeks, weekly, and just be like, this is our time. And no one can take that from us. And that if someone asks, hey, I need you to help me move, be like, sorry, I have this planned. Um, and so so picking out a, a day and being like, okay, we're, we're, this is our board game night. Um, and eventually, I think that can morph into Dungeons and Dragons night very easily especially if you you take the steps of being like okay how about we play oh you guys like this zombie horror game what if we did a zombie horror game where it was just like a hypothetical scenario where you know like you guys could do whatever you wanted and that is kind of like okay yeah sure let's try it out and that you can slowly based on the interests of the group adapt into role-playing games um and you know eventually get to the type of game you want to play um and and so, yeah, it takes time, but I, I really think it just takes a group of people that are committed to having a time set aside to, to hang out with friends, like a game night. I think that's so important nowadays. Um, you guys have really hit on all the stuff I was going to say. It is really important to have a sacred game night. Um, I, I love David's idea of doing genre entry points. Um, I would suggest starting with board games. Like D&D is inherently a social physical thing like you can play online and maybe that i'll talk about that in a second but what do you and your friends do for fun right now and when do you do it because if you're currently not meeting up weekly to hang out like even if you're just getting beers and shooting the breeze playing smash brothers whatever like just start doing that without board games without dnd mm -hmm. like just just start that yeah um you can always try things and, uh, and morph that night. Like some guys I know have started with poker nights. Some guys do board games. And it's not just guys, right? Like depending on who you are, um, your group of friends, you know best. And so you know how to present this or pitch the idea of D&D &D to them in the first place. Um, I would suggest just being enthusiastic, being really excited for this. Um, enthusiasm goes a long way to getting people attracted to this thing. And then also the genre. Yeah. Um, like we said, zombies and all that stuff is good. Board games, super helpful because you can kind of fine tune, like maybe people really only love Settlers of Catan. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you introduce a zombie game one night, whatever. Um, the The fact is that 
Tim here says that he can't play at game stores. I don't think you need to. I don't think you necessarily need to meet more people unless your friends have told you, like, we're not going to do that. Um, and, they, and if that's the case, that I would ask, what is your community? Like, whether that's online or if this is a physical thing. I know a lot of people know people through their church or through other, like, organizations. School, like even um, work. Yeah, right. There, there's like young professionals clubs you can go to just to meet people. Um, and if you're totally anxious in person, try to find an online game. Like they have um, Skype games you can join, Discord. This stuff is everywhere. You can do play by post if you're like too anxious to even be on a Skype call with somebody else. Um, and you just type, right? So there's there's many options here. It's just a matter of knowing where to look and who to ask. And then as for your friends, yeah. it is helpful to start with your friends, but... Um, they might not be the right people, right? Like they might not be interested uh, or they, when you do finally play with them, you might realize that you don't want to anymore. Uh, that happens. So don't be too heartbroken, right? Like don't hang your entire life on the reactions of a handful of people. So just set your expectations and keep looking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I can't preach this more. Maybe I'm preaching at uh, Will and David of just like <laughs> have a night that's sacred and be like, this is – we're doing this. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I like – like, oh, that's so important um, to have it, – it's like us to get incredibly metaphysical, like <laughs> us as um, <laughs> homo sapiens, uh, we require a ritualization of things. Like yes. of things being repetitive, of things being like every time this happens, we do this. And it used to be every solar eclipse, this festival would happen or whatever. But like now, we like every Tuesday, we it's a game night. You know, every, every Sunday every is football. Friday every, night, you know. Yeah, every, every Sunday is whatever. football. Like mm -hmm. every yeah, it, like the the ritualization of things is incredibly important because I have seen this several times. Of I have organized a group. Um, of players that might not have known each other um and we went okay tuesday nights tuesday nights tuesday night let's do this and and at first a lot of people would miss they'd be like okay yeah you know it's not a priority maybe the fiance is like hey I, we can't do that this week whatever and there there's this tension but eventually it becomes ritualized to a point where it's like no this is something that's very important to me and my group and it's just something that that cannot be shaken yeah. Um, so I really think ritualizing a game night um, can turn into a D&D &D night. And I just think that that, that ritual is, is really important to people. Yeah. You have to make it a consistent pattern in order for people to know about it. Because if it's a one-time thing, people are going to be like, hey, it's a one-time thing. You know, I'm just going to blow it off. But if people know when you play, where you play, on the dot every time they're going to be able to know, like, I need to show up to this. This is a pattern. Like you said, this is a ritual. You know, it's something that I do. It's It becomes a part of the person. That it's something, you know, I play D&D on Tuesday nights. That's just something that I do every That's week. That's part of who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, it, it takes time and energy, and it's something that you have to be consistent with. It's not something that you can start out and be sporadic with. And be like, oh, I feel like playing this week. Or, you know what, let's play on Wednesday this week. You have to have a set date and play every time on that day. <laughs> it, it should be important. And I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I just want to reach out and grab Will and, and just kiss him and then slap him on the mouth and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> I have bills to pay, Jake. <laughs> so, uh... I work every weekend and night. 
There's literally no free seconds, and don't don't pay attention to my Steam uh, game log. Steam account. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what he played into the Gungeon for another three hours yesterday. No time for D and D here. All right, uh, let's move on to our next question because I think we're just yeah. kind of going around in circles. Yeah, but it, it, they're very healthy circles. Healthy circles. This one's from Dan. He says, "Hey, Jake." <laughs> no recognition for David and I? Okay, Dan, thanks. He says, hey, Jake, oh, thank you. Dan here from the Faction Count Department. If you don't know what we were talking about, um, this person did a super cut of every time we said the word faction from oh, the yes. faction episode. It was over 200 times. Uh, he said it took him 40 hours to do. Did you say 40? I thought it was a nine. Oh, it was a nine? Well, I imagine it was 40. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's a full-time job. It, it was a big commitment, and I appreciate the word faction. So he says, hey, Jake. Dan here from the Faction Count Department. I'm going to start by saying that I love the podcast. Thanks, Dan. You three have very different ways of looking at 5e, and listening to Boxer Canada makes me feel like I'm sitting at a table discussing D&D with a few pals. Now here goes a question slash request, or as I would call it, a requestion. Missed opportunity, Dan. Um, Now here here goes with a requestion. Where is your episode regarding multi-classic? I'd love to listen to one. If you don't plan on doing an episode, I'd love to hear the three of your opinions regarding the option. And here's the best part of the email so far. My guess is that you, meaning Jake, is that you like multiclassing if it helps the narrative, David loves it if it helps him power game, and that William likes it because he likes his PCs to have access to the options of the PHB. Well, uh, Dan, I feel like we don't have to do the episode now because clearly you know what we would say. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed true it. fan. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a super fan. Uh, anybody who spends 9 to 40 hours editing a video of us talking is... Next level. Finally, he says, again, love to see an episode on multiclassing, maybe on customization of a character involving the use of multiclassing and feats. Thanks again. Have an awesome day. And send the same sentiments to Will and Dave for me. Cheers. Little did Dan know, um, I'm the one who gets the emails, so um, my feelings are only a little bit hurt. <laughs> so now you know, so, address um, them directly to David only <laughs> in the future. So I, I think um, that... I've been wanting to do an episode of multiclassing, but I just feel like we don't have enough experience with it as a as a group. I've multiclassed like every class to, I've played. Of course you have. But like, do you guys think? I don't know. I feel like we are we ready to do an episode on that? I am not without a lot of research. I feel like David would be carrying yeah. that one pretty much by himself. I feel like every episode we yeah. say is like, oh, we need to do more research into that, and then we just jump into it, and it's great. So. I've, yeah, I think so, Dan so, actually, okay, like, to, all jokes aside, he really nailed it. Like our approach to the subject. Yeah, really it might be surprising. A Who knows? lot of our thoughts, but but I feel like that episode definitely is in the pipeline. Oh um, yeah. But I guess for now we could give a teaser on what we think about multiclassing. So yeah, let's hear it. Um, multiclassing, don't do it. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! No. Okay. Um, I've never done it. Hot take. Never gonna do it because I'm never gonna play D and D as a player. So it's just more. Uh, oh, my, but do you let your players? Hold on. No, no. Do you let your players? If I was a player, I probably do just you let your players. Class. Oh yeah, they could. No, totally. no, no. Do you allow them to? Okay, okay. Yeah, sorry. We're getting some Skype lag. Okay. Um, so you allow you allow your players to? Yeah, uh, I actually like them to have access to the options in the player's handbook. Ugh, I'm disgusted. God, Dan's got us pegged. Dang it, Dan should be on the show. <laughs> um, Jake, what do you what do you think about multiclassing? 
So so I like multiclassing, God, because of what Dan said. Um, like the, <laughs> the, the narrative of it. Like I like so here's the thing. I really, really love there are two multi-classes I really enjoy. Um, and those two. I think anyone could place their bets right now and they'd, they'd probably be right are Warlock and Paladin um, because that allows Dungeon Master interaction and it's also a dip that's kind of like a consensual pact, like it's an agreement, it's a settlement, it's a, a thing you can do with a level up um, where a significant portion of the gameplay changes because of the, a decision you made in leveling up. Um, so, so I like um making packs and making new oaths to certain gods and i i think it's it's fun um a lot of classes kind of just like you don't even need to do a role play about it right like if you're a whispers bard that multi-classes into a thief rogue it's like okay that just makes <clears throat> sense right like you don't have to have a crazy backstory about that um, and so I like it. I think that the system of 5e with multi-classing is, is incredibly balanced. And so I just let it happen. Would um, you ever... But like I said, if, the, if go ahead. I was going to say, would you ever offer a level in a specific class as a reward for doing something for a specific oh. faction? Oh, seven hells no. <laughs> really? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Wait, I would give them a level up for free? But in a specific class. So, for example, so they, you know, would they you, delete you help out a specific level? patron. No, it would just say you just get an extra level in Warlock oh, okay, because okay, okay. you helped, okay. you know, this patron, or so, you helped this this cleric once, and because you got good standing with this church or this deity, so you were bestowed, right. you know, a level in cleric or paladin. So, so I like what you're saying. So. I, opening up lanes to be like okay now you you clearly the entire party has pleased this church so the rogue yeah you have an option to multi-class in a cleric um i like that kind of storytelling like moving people into different lanes and being like yeah you can now do this and you can now do this and you can now do this because of your choices um or doing it yeah, as like an alternate leave. reward like you can take this thousand gold or you can get a level in this class and, you know, have some new spells. I still, David, what are you saying? Are you giving them a full level so the whole party's level 10, but that player's level 11? Yeah. Absolutely not. Okay, I'm glad I pinned you. Okay, yeah. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. I would know. I'm not going to give levels as rewards. Um, I would definitely... So So here's what I've done with uh, players who have... Uh, and players like doing warlock packs with me. Um, I've often done a thing where I've been like, okay, you have this weapon. Um, recently, I've given a, a swords bard, um, a sword that you all, listeners, may be familiar with, um, called Black Razor, which is one of the most infamous legendary items in Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and it's like this long sword that literally has like a galaxy inside of it, and it just seeks to devour souls. Um, and it's a plus three magic item. Um, in most iterations of the game. Um, and I made it a plus one, but I said, as more, like, as long as you obey it, and as long as you um, agree with its demands and continue along with it and are kind of subservient to it, it will become a plus two magic item and then a plus three magic item. And I think that's really good. It's a way to allow progression 
and allow kind of like a warlock pack sort of uh, character development, character arc, um, without saying like, oh, you get a free level, you know. So, so I like having ways to be like, okay, adding in stuff to allow character development as opposed to just like magically imposing absurd stuff. So uh, I think I actually would consider, depending upon the type of game I'm running, I would give out maybe even a full level as like a reward. You're a maniac. For, <laughs> yeah, heaven forbid the players have too much fun, Jake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is going from Will. <laughs> so I would I would consider giving out a full <laughs> level or even just giving some of the abilities from a specific class for you know, doing things for a specific faction or a god or a warlock patron. Even if they don't uh, have, they want to, you know, be subservient to that patron. That patron is bestowed these favors upon them. So, for example, maybe you get a channel divinity just because you are in good standing with the church. Like, that's something that could be interesting and fun. And yeah, it might break the game in some instances, but if you're not super hyper focused on the balance and you're more focused on the story then that's not going to be a problem it only becomes a problem when you have a hyper game focused game this Weird. is insanity this bizarro world just, just set the record i want to set the record straight david hearing himself say the exact sentence he just said from when he was in the first episode of this podcast, he would have punched himself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. You know why, folks? Because that, my friends, is character development. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I'm, that was all uh, jokes on you. <laughs> That's something an idiot would say. <laughs> wow. Wow. This is, no, this is great. This is no, amazing. no, no. Yeah, no. I, yeah. So I, uh, I, yeah, and I think that's something that you can do that, that would be interesting is, you know, instead of giving out feats, for example, you could strip a, an ability from a specific like class. class. Or, like, you now have sneak attack because, you know, you've been practicing uh, sneaking around a lot. It's pretty fun. I don't know. It's, I, it's something that I you like can do. This. It could be fun. And it could be interesting. But I think you have to commit to things. Like, you have to commit to one level in Rogue, or you have to commit to one level in Warlock, or commit to one level in Cleric to yeah. get these... These yeah. things, because because that one level commitment is a it's a big commitment. Yeah. Um. I don't like distributing them like, oh, you like the church? I'll give you divine smite. Like that seems a little. Well, for me, it would have to be a me. significant character moment for them to be like, I I choose to you know work with the church. Yeah, exactly. So they get a little, they yeah. get a boost more than just what because for me, I to to pick a a single level in another class generally is bad and it's detrimental to but see player exactly characters. and that's why i think it's a character moment i think that's that i think that's why it's a character moment because for me i'm going through the uh dungeon of the mad mage and my my player who's a rogue um a mastermind rogue took one level in warlock um and is now serving mechanists like oh. this kind of clockwork king sort of like um lawful neutral like uh and I was like, I really love this because, like, they have to take a step back um, in their rogue abilities to do this. And so, yeah, they get Eld Eldritch Blast and, yeah, they get, like, a packed weapon and stuff like that. Um, but it's like, yeah, I love that because it is a sacrifice. It is a balancing act of, like, how much 
do I want this cool new patron stuff versus how do I want my, you know, level 18 or 19 rogue stuff eventually? I feel like I've stepped into a bizarro world because Jake is talking about game balance and David is talking about like flavor <laughs> and story. <laughs> you have. Oh my gosh. And I'm still this in the middle. character development, folks. Dan, you're tearing us <laughs> apart. <laughs> you're breaking us apart, Dan. <laughs> Oh man! But in general, so, so, okay, Dan. Oh, <laughs> no. Okay, I was just gonna say, in general, on multi-classing, uh, in the past, I think I would have said, you know, definitely because I want to power the the crap out of a class, and I want to, you know, have all these cool combinations. But <laughs> now, now when I look at uh, a class, it's it's definitely more flavorful like surprisingly like what's what's the most interesting thing that i can do with different class combinations like what would a druid barbarian look like so someone who shapeshifts into animals and then rages like that's really cool so it's more about finding interesting <laughs> I have combinations one of those in my party right now yeah um yeah jokes on you dan uh you didn't you you got two out of three <laughs> uh <laughs> no this is incredible i like yeah. i i really dan thank you for breaking our group and realizing that that weirdly we have all changed our perspective as as game masters mm-hmm. since we started which is what like about right a now about ago? a year ago exactly a year ago oh was gosh. i think when we yeah it's like literally within very like a week cl- yeah yeah it was yeah. when we recorded it's almost like all of us are leveling up in our own way <laughs> Or maybe David just multi-classed into, into Jake and vice versa. Oh, we multi-classed <laughs> into each other. Kindness. <laughs> Pretty soon we will oh, merge man. and become one. Mecca David. <laughs> Mecca David. <laughs> Javid. <laughs> Javid, the ultimate dungeon game master. <laughs> well, uh, Dan, thank you for your question. Um, I think it's really revealed uh, a lot about uh, ourselves. <laughs> All right. Our next question is actually two questions. I'm going to kind of mash them together because they're pretty similar. From the same fan named Benjamin R. Um, we took too long answering his or uh, to reply. And so he, he wrote us again to um, reiterate his question. He, I'm just going to read it. From Benjamin R. He says, hey, guys, big fan of the podcast. Just got done listening to all of the class episodes, and I learned a lot while enjoying your guys' input. I would love to see something similar with races. Go over different races, talk about their lore, talk about stats, talk about ideas for fun class combinations, and for RP. You could even spread it out over multiple episodes, since there are so many. Thanks, guys. P.S. A multi-classing episode would be awesome, too. All right. Okay. Oh, okay, you guys are asking uh, for too much now. A gun. <laughs> all right. Um, so he's talking about... Doing a, a class series, or sorry, a, um, race, me, a series. race series. Um, I think that's probably in the pipeline, right? In like the works. When uh, when we run out of ideas, we'll do another <laughs> big long another series. No, I I really like that. I like. I want to do like it as a segment. I don't want to do it as a fully committed. Yeah, that might be a good idea, but just because like the class thing was very in depth and it took a lot of time and research, um, and it also was very mechanical, and not yes. all of our fans listened to us for specifically five E advice and more for just general yes. role playing. Um, however, with races, yeah. I think that like the st- statistics are kind of minor, uh, even inside 5e. Like It's more about their place in the world and how to role play. So, we, yeah, yeah we, we can do a segment. Yes. Maybe we'll do an episode with like three. An episode with a couple of, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. So, we'll, uh, we'll pick out a, we'll probably do one with our favorite races. Mm-hmm. And, Dwarfs. Uh, 
we all know that humans are the superior race. <laughs> oh, That's oh, racist. Hit, Hitler, is that you? <laughs> um, okay, so okay, going back to Ben, uh, yeah, we we definitely will do something with braces in the future. Uh, but I'd like to just kind of bend this question to be like, what what are some of your favorite races um, to be a dungeon master for in your in your campaigns? Well, I, I, that's kind of a loaded question because it's never just a race. Like it's a race class combination, and then they have their own backgrounds and stuff. So there's a lot of variables. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it. But are, are, do, do you ever find yourself pushing a player to a certain certain race? Because I, I know I have. Like, cause for be me, like, oh, I want to be human, and I'll be like, why don't you be maybe a high elf? You know. It depends upon the world and the game that I'm running. Have you heard of the high elves? Mm. <laughs> Go, David. I don't want to anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it depends upon the world and the game that I'm running because races are almost like factions where they're going to change and fluctuate from game to game. So high elves and elves might be of a certain nature in one game, whereas in the next they might be very different, whereas the dwarves might be very distant and removed and isolated in one game, or you could have, you know, a very common uh, dwarf um, society that's just more fluid and f- involved in your world, and maybe they're more war-conquering in another game. So it kind of depends on my interpretation of them for that game. So that's that's kind of a non-answer mm. answer. No, I totally agree, you. though, David. Yeah, because like, so much no, can I change agree. in one campaign or another. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm just yeah. gonna stick with my favorite. Like, I never see dwarf characters, uh, and then somewhat confusingly, in one of my most really? longest-running campaigns, we had a character who was a human who fought in the dwarven military, and the player spoke with a Scottish accent, and for all intents and purposes, was a dwarf, uh, except he was a human. Mm. Oh, so close, oh, so close, but so far. Oh man, uh, that's interesting. That's it's, for me. It's always elves. I don't. I don't get enough elves in my game. It's always a half elf for the charisma. Mm-hmm, um, of course, plenty of dwarves. I think a lot of friends like to have that Scottish draw to them. Um, like I've said in my games, I have crazy races. Um, so, you know, you could be a turtle or an aracocra or a tiefling, and you know all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess I wouldn't have been this just to what what are the races yet like that you love? And I think for me, it's gotta be tieflings. I really love tieflings and they're um you look at a, a Dungeons and Dragons type fantasy world, and it's easy to be like, uh, you look at an elf and you can kind of give them the racist term of like, uh, what are you doing here? Knife is you know, and it's like, okay, like you could look at dwarf and be like, What are you doing here, shorty? Uh, you know, and and you can kind of give this kind of racist flair to everyone. But mm. if you have someone who's a literal demon person, it's like, oh my gosh. Like, there's there's definitely more charged racism in there that, that like, can be definitely used for character development and stuff going forward. Um, and I really like uh, tieflings in general. Tieflings are great because they're... They have that stigma attached to them generally in most games where they're kind of the societal outcasts. And I don't want to go too much yeah, into despite depth being about it, but player's handbook yeah. uh like Will said, despite being player's handbook appropriate or allowed, 
um, they're still they're the ones that are like they're definitely that get the most racist. Yeah, they're these, and and gen, it's interesting because they have a lot of charisma, so they're these highly charismatic people, but they tend to be on the fringes of society, so you're going to find them in the underworld, or they're going to be gypsies, or uh-huh. carnies, or they're they're not going to be in the main aspects of society, because most people don't want to mm-hmm. deal with someone who's a demon person. A just, person, yeah. Like, if I knew someone was a descendant of a demon... I probably wouldn't deal with them. That's just like that's something that would be a deal with the devil, David. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, how often do you hear about deals with the devil going, you know, your way? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, this is insanity to me to hear this because because I love this coming from a um, a like player's handbook uh, type of scenario, and it's like, yeah, the. Tieflings have a lot going, but like in my world, it's like okay, you can be a uh, a drow, you can be a minotaur, you can be an aracocra, you can be a turtle, and so it's like okay, all this stuff. It's like yeah, there's so much more of this kind of craziness um, that it kind of limits the racism because there's so. I mean, when you look around and see like oh yeah, that, yeah, that's Frank. He's a fish person. It's really hard to be racist to your local demon person, you know? (laughs) I feel like Jake's world just looks like Zootopia in that first scene when she goes to the city and there's just like a rainbow (laughs) cascade of different sizes and shapes. and different species. Yeah. So (laughs) I I think uh, the, I guess the the final question that I want to twist it and turn it on you guys is what races would you like to see more of in your games? Oh. Um, for me, I've had a player recently asked to be a, uh, a fire genasi, Ooh. Um, and and I was like, and, and I was like, I those weirdly in my crazy rainbow flavorful world uh, don't exist, and so I was like, we have to to think of a, a reason why you're real, <laughs> um, and so I think the elemental genasis, uh I would like to include more. Um, as well as, I think we talked about it earlier, mul- merfolk um, mm. and uh, tritons. Yeah, I, I have not included in my world building. So if someone wants to be that, I have to kind of do the backpedaling of being like, okay, let's do some reverse world building to make this possible. Mm. Probably Warforged. I'm just very interested in artificial people. Oh, <laughs> you just want, I, you I want fake you people. <laughs> I want to make You're my so friends. good. I just want to be loved. <laughs> Warforged are great. Yeah, there's something about them that um, I would love to see, like an all Warforged party, some kind of like strike team moving through the forest with relentless oh, pace. You know, yeah. I, I'm big on imagery uh, when I get excited for campaigns. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I'll just write a short story, guys. Um, that sounds fun. So <laughs> I have I have three races that I'd like to see more of. One of them. So the first one is Drow. Mm-hmm. I never see drow in my game. They can't live oh above ground. God. I'm in the thick they get a of dark elf stuff in my campaign. Sunlight. Oh man, they just get. I think it's uh, they get some sort They're of minor great. disadvantage in sunlight, and that's it. But mm-hmm. that's about it. But I I think drow are really interesting, and that's something that I'd like to see more in my games. Um, the other two are Arakakra and Kenku. Yes. Aarakocra yes. are... I think there's so much room for roleplay that's hilarious. And Kenku as well. Just the ability where they can only speak with mimic speech. That's just 
every experience I've had with Kenku has been so much fun, and I would love to see them more. Yeah, it, 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 so Kiku takes a really devoted player type yeah. of player or dungeon master or DM um, if they're an NPC. Um, and, and, but like that, it pays off so well. Like it's it's one of those things. If you look at being a dungeon master and like, okay, you're building this mountain range or you're trying to edit graphic design this, and it's like you do all that, and it's like the effort. Sometimes you go, ah, did that pay off? If but the effort put into like Kinku mimic speech, like. Oh in my experience, pays off a lot. Yeah, I just <laughs> have this vivid memory really well. of uh, encountering Kenku assassins or whatever, and we're we're in, a, in some sort of tomb or crypt, and we're walking around, and we just hear, uh, Mommy, I'm scared! And then you just see this weird yes. bird-looking person come out, and it's like... Oh. Oh, it's terrifying and so creepy. Such a Ooh. great creature. What oh, I would dude. do is I would have the player write down like a dozen phrases. Mm-hmm. Like this is all you know. Yes. And you can only speak in some combination of these words or in those complete phrases. Mm-hmm. And so they just oh, have to like God, make the yes. most of a very limited vocabulary. Oh, my God. Okay, guys. I, okay, I got to tell a story. So we, <laughs> okay. we, were in, uh, we, were, we were doing a post-apocalyptic campaign. Um, and I introduced... Um, so, so they went to essentially their old, uh, like main hideout, like their main place, their main fort. Um, but it was like two hundred years in the future, so it was really interesting because there were new characters, but the players knew, oh crap, we're we're going back to our fort, like in a post-apocalyptic setting. And so they were like kind of like going through, searching through all the buildings they'd been through before, and uh. There was a group of like raiders, and, and like one of them was just like a, a little little guy who was a, he was a kinku, um, and was just like, go to sleep, little darling. Don't don't pay too much mind here. Don't pay too much mind here. Oh. And like they're like doing all this stuff, and I was like, okay, they're gonna fall in love with this kid. Like, and, and I literally designed this kinku to have like pre-programmed phrases that everyone would love it right <laughs> and so they they go in and they like eventually the the wizard just gets mad and attacks it and so i'm like no and so uh, somewhere along the way that the wizard was like get busy living or get busy killing and like like it was kind of like one of those like kind of jokey one-liners as they were killing everyone um and the kinku escapes and i w- and i was so mad because it was like i designed this kinku to be like I thought he would be with the party forever and like he would just like kind of repeat the party's phrases and everyone would be like, nice. But it's like, no, that did not happen. (laughs) But the last, the last encounter in that whole campaign of post-apocalyptic stuff, um, that Kinku showed up with the raid, with the raiders. Um, and I was like in the front lines and like at the end in the same character's voice just said, get busy living or get busy killing and it was like such a good reveal because it said the exact same thing that that wizard said to it oh Um, it was so good what was the player reaction (laughs) oh it was just like it it was great it it was weird because like they could tell i invested in this creature and it's like it's (laughs) almost like this it's almost like this like this guy could have been an npc but like he had to come back as a villain like oh man 
<laughs> Dang, I like that a lot. That's oh, so yeah. cool. So yeah, Kinkus are awesome. Are yes. Fantastic. But um, uh, Benjamin, we will definitely eventually, eventually have a uh, an episode or several episodes on on races. But um, I hope that that uh, whetted your appetite for now. <laughs> Ooh, this next one is from Kennedy. This is a pretty lengthy question, so we're going to do it in a couple of sections. Kennedy says, good morning, guys. I had a couple of thoughts, questions that you might be able to use for the question vault. While listening to your Warlock episode, Jake mentioned that he loves the Warlock and Paladin because of the inherent DM interaction to draws between a patron and the servant. I was wondering if you've ever had players that wanted to limit their interactions between a DM and themselves. The DM is already seen as the antagonist to the PCs, disagree, and so having them as your literal god and being able to take away the PCs' powers or punish them might make some players wary to those classes. I'm guilty of this myself. I have a pretty high-risk aversion, don't we all, and like picking classes that are very self-sustaining, like a fighter, monk, wizard, or sorcerer. So that's his first part of his email. Uh, so let's say that. Yeah. So, all right, so TLDR is... Uh, Patrons OP? Patron, are, no, are patrons bad because of the DM is a bad guy? And I think that... So it's, it's not bad. It's just the risk. Like, there is a high risk if you go, I'm an Oath of Ancient Paladin, and suddenly you venture into a place, and, like, the Dungeon Master is like, okay, you have to never attack a plant, or else you'll lose your Paladin powers. You know, okay. Like, I think so, that's the fear coming from that. Okay. And I think that... I think there needs to be a little more, like, clarity on some dungeon masters might do that where they're like if you if you do any small minor thing out of line you're gonna just automatically like you're you've lost your powers they're gone and i think Mm -hmm. that in a more role-playing focused game that's going to be less so even even in a regular game most game masters aren't super strict like that and any who are are just kind of jerks to begin with because you don't want to play with a game master who's antagonistic you? to your players. And I think that's a point that we need to unpack a little bit is that the game master isn't the antagonist. They're the person who's setting up the story. So the villains that you interact with, while they might be role played by the game master, they're not the game master himself. And everybody at the table is working in concert to tell this story together. And the game master is more of the conductor. And the conductor isn't someone who the band is trying to fight off. There's someone who is, you know, directing and giving direction to the players. So I think that it's kind of a fallacy or a flawed view to have this idea that the game master is the antagonist, even though at times it can seem like you're working against each other. It's more of you're kind of working with each other. That's more of my view of that relationship. What do you guys think? I think it depends on the GM. Um, mm-hmm. and, and on the group itself because um, obviously like David is speaking from our experience and like we just yes. don't run D&D like that um, so yeah I, I agree with what David said it just if you feel like your DM is going to screw you and say oh I take away your powers because like this minor infraction um, then probably don't pick that class um, but if you're running like a heavy story driven kind of campaign like I don't know just have a conversation with your GM right like be up front and say hey I don't want you to do this like please don't do this or here's the direction I want to go with this character. Like, be an adult, communicate, um, and don't play with people who are petty and childish. Yeah. Yeah. You want to, you want to, yeah. I think yeah. that communication is key. And you really, if you ha- if you feel like there might be a problem, just talk about it. You know, get it, 
get out on the table so that, you know, you're both on the same page. Right. We I were, think we're playing a voluntary activity mm-hmm. for fun for and entertainment. Yeah. And it's for the benefit of everyone. I think that the powers that you can get from a, you know, serving your deity well and, you know, getting boons from the deity on top of, you know, what other abilities you might already have, that just comes with the role play of the class. And let's say you want to do a less, you want your DM to do less role play. You can talk with them about that and, you know, kind of easing up on that aspect of the game. But I think it's also, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm thinking from the aspect of there are some people who really, I'm thinking like myself, who really love, um, that like being punished by the dungeon master, <laughs> like that like being put in situations that aren't optimal. Um, and I think some role players are like, yes, I want to be punished for my wrongdoings. I want to be this kind of grim, dark character with all this backstory and like, oh my gosh, Job of the Hut is requiring me to pay these bills. And oh my gosh, I made a deal with Satan himself who is asking me to do all these things. And like some players love that. Like they love being pulled in every which way and being like, do I protect my party or do I have to give up my warlock powers or like all this stuff. And it gets complicated and it gets dramatic and it gets messy. And I, I personally love that, like as a dungeon master. But there, and as a player. But there are some players who are like, no, I just want to, I want to play the game. I want to do the best I can. And I think there are several classes that avoid that really well. I think um, something like a fighter, a uh, ranger, a monk, I think like Kennedy mentioned. Um, those are classes that can just kind of bypass the dungeon master fiat of like, Oh, well, Grognak doesn't want you to do that. And you serve Grognak, right? Like you kind of avoid that dungeon master nonsense. Um, And I agree there needs to be kind of like, okay, what does the dungeon master want out of us? What kind of game are we doing? Like, is the dungeon master trying to railroad us? Whatever. Um, But I think there are plenty of classes that allow you total independence from the dungeon master, uh, the dungeon master's puppet strings, um, in regards to uh, just role play in general. Yeah, and I think that if you already are a person that doesn't want to have someone limiting your abilities, you're probably going to stray away from those classes to begin with. I, I mean, personally, I'm someone yeah. that in the yeah. past, I haven't wanted to have that happen, so I didn't play those classes because I didn't want to you know, have to worry about serving some sort of deity. That's why I probably haven't played a lot of that's why i haven't played any cleric before and why i haven't played much paladin yeah no like it totally makes sense if you're min maxing can you imagine min maxing and being like oh god what is what does beelzebub want me to do oh yeah you know like it's it's kind of just like this this back burner thing that you're like no i, I want to do as much damage as i can i want to be focused i want to be the best type of of damage dealer i can and it's like I don't have time for the dungeon master to be like, listen up, boy, you have to do this or I'll take away your powers. <laughs> uh, yeah, I see what Kennedy is saying. Like there's classes where you have full control of your character. And then like for warlock and cleric, um, you're giving up part of that for the, yeah, like, and, and you are required to give up part of that as part of the character. So that could be a concern. Um, but I think that it just depends based on all the stuff we just said, just communicate. And uh, if you're in doubt, don't play it. Yeah, absolutely. Kennedy has a second part of the 
email. He's really being very efficient with uh, his emails. Second question, how do you all view D&D as a game itself, and do you think certain classes enhance or hinder that view? For example, I view D&D as a team-based game with emphasis on victory. I like when all the party members are able to work together, form a close bond of friends, and triumph. That's part of the reason I'm always wary of classes that could be very chaotic or evil in nature, like a rogue or warlock. This is a kind of similar fear that Jake has with the barbarian and the idea of them just ruining a poor person's game with their brutish antics. I have this <laughs> I just have this fear that a rogue is going to always try and take the party's gold, steal their magic items, or double-cross them if presented with the right cost. With the warlock, I just see them always deceiving the party. Had some experiences with good and bad rogues and warlocks, but anytime I hear that someone in my future game wants to play one, I can't help but feel that pit in my stomach. Hmm. Huh. That, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think it brings up the whole thing of the party being on the same team. And like, how do we establish that? Because that really feels like less of a rogue and warlock problem and more of a establishing the players as on the same team almost to the degree of like friends yeah like should you start off your i don't know this is a good question well this is yeah this is a really good question because i think this is a problem that a lot of people tend to face in their games where you know, you can have one greedy player who just, I want to play a rogue because I want to be a greedy boy and I want to yeah. steal all the party's gold. And that's <laughs> something that happens. Like, that's happened in my games. That's happened in uh, other games that I've been games. in. That's happened in, you know, that happens a lot. And I think that is less of a problem of the game that you are playing. And I think it's more of a problem of the people you are playing Ooh, with. Preach it, David. So if you have people who are not going to want to tell this fun, cooperative story, you're not going to have a good time in general. Even if you force them to say, hey, you can't play a rogue. You can't play a warlock because these guys are bad guys. You got to play a good guy like a, a paladin. You know, they're, they're still going to have their greedy tendencies as players. They're still, gonna, they're still not going to want to work together as a team as you would like. And if you're wanting to focus on a team focused game you should set that as kind of like ground rules or guidelines or expectations of your players the and you need to communicate it to them so you're you you tell them hey up front i i want you guys to work together to tell a story and i don't want you guys to be in conflict i don't want you guys to be biting and bickering amongst yourselves because i don't think that's a fun game and i don't think anybody would enjoy that type of game i disagree <laughs> So because I think I think the idea of having a rogue go against the party and screw them over isn't bad story wise because we see it happen in a lot of stories. I mean, Han Solo was a greedy, you know, rogue smuggler. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great story. But, you know, you can see him start to deal with that interpersonal conflict of, you know, now I'm starting to like these guys. You know, I kind of don't want to screw them over now. And I think that offers for great yeah. character development and great storytelling if you're in that story-focused setting. But you also don't want to have GTA syndrome where everybody is just, you know, going around being murder hobos and, <laughs> you know, ruining the type of story and party that you are wanting to set up. Hmm. Well, so he's asking yeah. um, how we view D&D as a game. He says he views okay. it as a team-based game with emphasis on victory. Wow. So, 
Wow, this is one question with multi parts within the question. Kennedy, you should be a speechwriter for politicians. Uh, this is very, <laughs> very dense and ordered. Um, so, just to back up, David here. Yes. The, the maturity of your players matters, and player selection matters. So try to get it right up front. Don't just invite anybody who's interested to play D anD D because one bad apple will ruin your game. Believe me, I have had that happen. Um, it was okay. You don't have to call me out right now. <laughs> His name was Jake Barton. <laughs> it was he had to move away. It was so bad. Uh, <laughs> but no, so be careful. As far as I view D anD D, I think uh, Kennedy's pretty accurate here. Like it is a, a team based game. I don't know about the emphasis on victory. Um, it's more about for me interesting stories um i like the well I, I say i like this but i don't know if it actually comes out in my games i like the pixar school of character development where you identify what your character is best at and then put them in a situation where none of that matters <clears throat> and you know and see what they do yeah um so yeah i think but but it's not it, in the end if you look at the pixar school of name one sad ending pixar film no of course of course right but the character had to yeah, overcome so, so their own think... shortcomings Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I think the victory thing is accurate. What he said, um, but it's like it's like how much bullcrap do we want them to deal with? <laughs> they will suffer, especially like no, no yeah. It's not even bullcrap. It's like it's it's um, party inflicted bullcrap. <laughs> um, because because yeah, there's obviously going to be a Tarask in the way of saving the princess and all that stuff and 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 all that. And I don't think he's talking about that i think a way to solve the problems he's talking about of having the rogue or the warlock do just the crazy um like hashtag chaotic neutral stuff oh. um, <laughs> is to, we live in a society uh, i yeah <laughs> gamers rise up um i really think the best the best thing to do is we've talked about this a lot is the uh, fiasco system and having the relationships Mm. Um, and I think if you have a warlock and a rogue uh, that are both chaotic neutral, um, if one of them is uh, the son of someone in the party and the rogue is best friends with someone else in the party, suddenly that makes both of those chaotic neutral characters from these, like you said, Kennedy, chaotic types of classes, it, it ties them to a, the party in a way that won't ruin the game because if they ruin the game they'd have to re ruin their relationships too mm -hmm. um and i really like being able to be like okay yeah you can be this crazy chaotic chaotic rogue that does all this stealing and treachery and all this stuff but i want to tie you to the cleric in the game and be like maybe you're the son of the cleric and you Ooh. can't steal in front of you the cleric um and like I think that's the best way to combat this stuff of like the kind of combativeness. It's called intra-party conflict um, is to be able to tie the characters together in such a web that they want to help each other and they don't want to betray each other. Um, and this happens naturally over time. Um, if you watch, if you're part of any Dungeons and Dragons group that lasts a year long or you watch Critical Role, by the end... They have so many webs and connections and bonds that, like, nothing will break them apart. Yeah. And, like, that's what your, your goal is. But maybe if you are afraid of this kind of nonsense, connect them earlier. Like, be like, okay, have a bond with them. You won't steal in front of them. Like, you're obligated to them. Just to connect them to the party in a way that they won't be, uh, they won't cause mischief. 
when I started out our Tomb of Annihilation campaign, I did a really brief, um, almost like a flashback or montage, and I said all of your characters are part of this organization called the uh, Company of the Yellow Banner, and I did like these scenes from like the first six months of their time together, and here are the types of things you did, and here's your what happened, and then I asked them questions or whatever, and all that was to say like you trust each other and you worked with each other and you know how to work together. And so even though I was playing yeah. with um, younger players, they're they're not immature necessarily, but they're younger and that they can tend to be immature. We had none of that, um, like I steal from you or I, you know, uh, try to kill you or anything. And I think a large part of that was That's because so we had this background just saying like, look, they have your back. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I really like that. I, and it's really easy to be like, hey, like you, ha- you know, this guy somehow. Like, how do you know the person to your left and the person to your right? Mm-hmm. And you could just be like, create these bonds early on. And it's really nice to be in this group where it's like, okay, we just are out of nowhere and we slowly bond with each other. But sometimes that gets messy. And sometimes you mm-hmm. might want to just start those bonds earlier. Like, just be like, yeah. we're cousins. Or, <laughs> you know, I once did a deal and it went wrong and he caught me. Right? Like, like just little bonds where it's like, we're connected before we have to be, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, the third part of his question is, uh, do you all have an ideal number of players for your games? I've found that four PCs is my Goldilocks zone for both DMing and playing. To go off of that, do you have an ideal party of characters? For me, I love having a tanky fighter, a healing cleric, a wizard, and some sort of party face like a bard. I think it adds a lot of great magic and martial concepts to combat and social interactions. Um, yeah, so he's he's building like basic uh, trinity yeah. d- damage DPS or sorry, his DPS healer tank. Yeah, um, so, I think so four people is. Do you is guys perfect have four? Four is your perfect. Like like three David. is okay. Four is probably ideal. I don't like three. I like five. I like what? five too, David. I like five. Ooh. I think five is my ideal. Five is like, because four is like, you're almost too low on players because if you have five and someone misses out, like four is still enough. But if you have four and someone misses, then three it just feels bad. So I like five. Six, I'm okay with. Wow. David. Nothing above six though. Like it's just, it gets too much above uh, six. I've done, I've done above six. I've done an eight party or an eight player party and yeah it's it's insane it's insanity and you have to really kind of drop the gaminess and make it more like active improv okay Um, yeah so i was just about to say i would do i would do much more of a game with more than six players but i think you would have to shift into either spectrum of you either are fully improv or you're fully game but you can't do both because it slows the game down too much if you focus on if you focus on doing both instead of just one or the other so yeah yeah it's definitely something that you're going to with more players you have to have a more defined look i think critical role when they have a lot of players they do they they the improv works really well because that's something that they totally focus on so Yeah. yeah i think five that's great it's it's enough to manage and really keep track of and i think with you that's a total of six people and that's you know a fun night yeah i think mine is 4.5 so it's like four or five is like my perfect yeah um four four is really manageable five is like i think the most chaotic and fun 
Um, <laughs> above that takes takes some skill. It takes some juggling skills uh, that are that are hard to master outside of juggling large groups of people. <laughs> I think I think um, three can work if you have three stellar I think, players. Yeah. I think I think you like because yes. you need more people who can carry the game in terms of like role playing. So yes. with if if they're not as skilled, it's gonna be a lot harder to have a more fun game because in in a group of like five people, you can have people who are kind of quieter or shyer or who don't interact as much but who enjoy being there and participating. And those people can they're I don't want to say they're background characters, but they're not as active. But they still like contribute and have you know a good time, and it and it can still flow really well. Yeah. So yeah, I think four is is good for me, but I I would love to do five. I just frankly don't ever have five people uh, who can all play at the same time. Um, as for party composition, uh, I don't know if I have a specific preference. I just like seeing players who can find a synergy with odd group builds. Um, yeah, I like weird yeah. group builds where it's like I actually the one group build that I wouldn't like to see. It's just the standard classic, you know, tank, fighter. Uh, you have your healer, wizard, rogue. Like, I, that's just so boring. And I would love to see more interesting right, creative like Two parties. wizards, um, some kind of like... A couple of druids. Yeah, a bard, a druid, and then, um, I don't know, some weird tank thing. It'd be so interesting. Yeah, I think bottom line, I, I don't think it matters. Or no tank. Yeah, I, think I agree with main, Jake. The... the yeah, the only matter. thing that really matters is ranged versus melee. Yes. Um, and if you have a somehow have a party that's all ranged, you're going to run into some problems. Same thing if you have a party that's like all melee. Um, but as apart from that kind of ranged aspect of it, I think you can kind of, I think it speaks testament to the, the game design of 5e. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, literally, you could throw th- four druids into the Dungeons of the Mad Mage, and it would work. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really like that. Um, so, I really, unless you're trying to do it wrong, I don't think you can go wrong with, with like, party design or, like, um, subclass choices. Um, it's really hard to, like, get to the point where it's dysdynamic is that a word that's not a word it'd be like dysfunctional <laughs> or uh no Dys- yeah yeah, yeah. I, it's hard to get to that I, I think there's so many variants that they a lot of them can work right our class episodes revealed that you could have a party that's all the same class but with different subclasses and you still have a very functional group for our final question this is from james r with a short little question he says what are some ways to be forward-thinking on how a campaign will go. I project this campaign will last about a year long and don't know how I should plan for that length. Any tips for longer campaigns would be much appreciated. First of all, props to James for planning on a campaign going for a year. Like, yeah. that's that's ballsy. So my strategy has always been this, is have a rough design of what you want your major milestones to be in a campaign so you'll have you know your final boss battle as the last one and you'll have some sort of episode introducing the villain or at some point and then it'll be you know some sort of thing dealing with more character development of the villain and you know have a certain climactic event here and then that's about it and then you you really want to focus on the uh 
adventure to adventure prep. You don't want to think too far ahead because your game's going to fluctuate and change and you really don't know what the players are going to choose or do or how they're going to interact with the world. So if you go out and you've already planned out, you know, your 99 campaign episodes and the players do something totally wrong, all of that prep goes to <laughs> yeah. waste. So it's kind of, you I, want to have yeah. loose prep into more refined prep as you get shorter down in your uh, planning of your campaign. So it's very detailed yes. and refined for, you know, what you're going to do next episode, a little rough for the next, you know, two or three you're going to have, you know, a good idea of what you want to do and that needs to be fleshed out. And then for the broad, it would be, you know, you have broad strokes, but nothing beyond that yet. Ask yourself, yeah. what would happen to the world if the players weren't here? Like if the Dark Lord is building his undead army Ooh. to walk across the earth uh, and conquer everything, um, he's going to do that unless the players intervene. There's a game called Dungeon World that I've mentioned before. I recommend looking up a concept from that game called Fronts. And all that is, is um, you take a faction or a villain, you have their master plan, and you write basically like one to ten steps of like, here's what happens if the players do nothing, right? Like first the the dead begin to rise, and then towns start to burn, and then whatever. Like you just keep on going, and then you have a couple of those, right? Like you have three of them in your game, and so the players can only choose to stop one of them, and the others keep on rolling. And so they're constantly having decisions to make and leads to chase down but the, the thing is is that mm -hmm. the world does not stop for your players yeah it oh, keeps going that god it will that that it like hurts my heart because like i'm designing this campaign for the players to succeed i know and like are. imagining a post-apocalyptic wasteland it, it, oh it's hard it's hard but i think it, it's very important i think that's very valuable advice um, but but I think obviously the first thing you get is like the theme of like, okay, what's happening? Is this a demonic invasion? Is this Tiamat and the dragon cult raising her from the depths of hell? Is this um, the death curse? Is this um, giants invading from the north? You can think of all these things. And there's kind of this like overarching thing that's happening that the, that the characters can't ignore. I think that's the most important thing for like a big campaign is like the characters can't go, oh. Let's uh, let's uh, let's go east and shop for trinkets. <laughs> yeah. It's like okay, no, you. Eventually, you can't go east and shop for trinkets because whatever bad thing will have will have happened. Um, so so think of kind of a world altering or like just event, eventy is that a word? Eventy thing. <laughs> um, that that really affects the world. Um, and then at that point. Once you have that concept of like where this is leading to, um, I think this is a really good thing for just any writers, uh, fiction or nonfiction. You have this kind of climax of like, okay, Tiamat will be faced off with, or they're going to try to stop the demon invasion at the gate here, or they're going to attack the, the, the king of the, of the high uh, giants here. You have that thing and then you go, okay, I've got that. Now I can start. I think that's really important for campaigns that are a little more on the rails. Um, you have that kind of final thing and then you go, okay, now we can start. And then you can kind of do the math of your players. I'm guessing since you have a timeline of about a year, I'm guessing maybe you guys are in college or your coworkers and it's like kind of a, 
more of an official thing. You, you you can plan out this far ahead, which is a luxury that I know not everyone in this recording room has. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you could be able to be like, okay, this is the final thing, and then they can move towards that. And so you go, what what level do I want them to be in this final encounter? And you can kind of do the math uh, to get them there. Um, and so. Like like Will and David said, you don't want to kind of plan out encounters to be like, okay, they do A and then B and then C and maybe it goes off to D and F. Like you don't want to do that. Um, you want to just be able to, to have the time each week to digest what they do and be like, okay, how does this lead to the finale? And then create the next stuff from there. Um, so you really have to have the bones set up and you just add meat to the bones going forward um, and pace it from there. And... and Dungeon Master experience adds to this. It makes it easier and easier to kind of pace this out. But um, in the end, the players don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so so you can really um, don't feel like they're watching you. I think that's a, I think I really think that's a, a, a trap that Dungeon Masters fall into is they think their players are like peeking over their shoulders and they're like, what are you doing? Oh, wait, that was a trick. Are you kidding me? That was a false thing. You didn't. But it's like, they don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, really plan out everything, make it work, make it flow, join in the individual arcs of your players, um, and just have the confidence that you can make this story and and have that liberation of, like, the story is made by you and no one is looking over your shoulder critiquing you. I think that's a great, I think that's a great point because I, I, I like to think about it like video games. So let's take Minecraft, for example. The world nice. doesn't exist until you load it. The world doesn't oh, render until yeah. you actually load up the game and your computer processes it and turns on and, you know, all the chunks load. And think about the story as different chunks in your campaign. So every session, a new chunk is loaded and that chunk doesn't exist and nothing happens in it until it's until loaded. Until it's loaded. And so, oh, that's it can, so good. It's, it's so malleable and flexible and fluid with what you can do. Like you shouldn't have to worry about, oh, what's going to happen because you can you can totally change it on the fly. And I think that's the real problem that game masters get into is that they focus so much on the story they have planned and they don't allow for any fluidity or malleability yeah. in their stories that they, they, they don't know how to mesh these two things together because they inherently don't fix because – their, their players have done things that are counter to the story that they've already written and they don't want to change it. Yeah. 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 I got nothing else to add. Thanks, James. Oh, man. Great questions. Thank you. All right. Well, that was our second ever Question Vault special. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana episode 42. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. You can follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are at Vox Arcana Pod. If you like what we're doing here, you can support us on Patreon for $5 per month. You can get access to our patrons-only bonus feed, um, where you get access to our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. Um, in addition, you get every month's bonus episode going forward. Leaving us a five-star review on iTunes is one of the best ways that you can help us grow our podcast and reach total world domination. David was the villain the whole time. <laughs>